Welcome to Strategy Can Be Fun. This is our third episode. My name is Keith Bergun, and with me is, as always, Brett Lowy. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Pax Pamir, um, which uh, actually, Brett, maybe you, you kind of introduced me to this game, so maybe you can give people a background on sure. this game. And, and there's a whole series of like Pax games, isn't there? There are. Uh... Yeah, so Pax Pamir is a game by Cole Worley, who's one of my favorite designers. He's also the designer of Root. And um, Pax Pamir is a historical war game, primarily, set in the 1800s. That's about a period of history called The Great Game in Afghanistan. And um, in it, uh, it's kind of like a tableau builder, so kind of like Race for the Galaxy or something. You'll be playing cards down to a tableau and using them for their special abilities. and you're trying to, there's three factions in the game, the British, the Afghans, and the Russians. And you're trying to figure out which of those factions is going to be dominant and get on that train. Or if none of the factions are going to be dominant, you're trying to build up your own personal power base, basically. Um, yeah, and I, I really like it. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, um, so we played, uh, I think I've played like four or five matches of it somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, yeah. I had never played it before, uh, the podcast. Uh, you've played a lot more, though, right? You've played a few dozen? I've played probably, yeah, 30 plus times now, something like that. Yeah, and so to start it off with, you know, uh, you know, what I think one of the things you started off telling me about it was that every game, every match has like its own identity and, and they go really differently um, each time. Um, I guess, yeah, that can just be a prompt for you to, you, you mentioned it's one of your favorite games. So why don't you um, go through some of the things, like what makes it one of your favorite games? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. it it's Each time you play, it's very different. And I, I think I prioritize, as a player, I prioritize variety super highly in terms of, like, game enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like to be put into, like, meaningfully different situations. Um, and one of the things that Pax Mirror does really well to make that happen is it, it's kind of unclear uh, what is going to matter in terms of winning the game uh, as you're playing. So, I don't know. For example, there's there's an action in the, in the game called Betray. And Betray... Uh, lets you destroy one of the cards that your opponent has played uh, using one of your spies. And some games, the betray action is like pivotal. We had one of our games where you betrayed a whole bunch of my cards and it put me in a really tight spot. And some games, the betray action is hardly used. Um, and so there's there are cards that you can acquire that give you access to this betray action. Um, but it's very difficult to know whether or not you want that action in a particular game or whether it's going to matter. And so sometimes you will kind of really, you know, pay any price to get that action. Uh, or sometimes you'll kind of get it as part of a card that you're buying for another thing. And then only later find out that it really matters that you have that action. Um, and so, yeah, I just really like that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, and I agree. I think it I think it succeeds at that. Um, another thing that I, I appreciate about it is that it's um, it's mechanically very different, actually, maybe from like any game I've played uh, because, it you know, it has some Euro tropes, uh, but it's it's not a Euro game like overall. And I think the main thing that for me makes it 
not a Euro game is the extremely it's it reminds me more of like those train games, uh, some of them, especially older ones like uh, Age of Steam, uh, where, you know, it's very cutthroat or like Chicago Express uh, It's very cutthroat, uh, you know, and you can just like lose a, a, in a very abrupt way sometimes. Um, and, and that's such a non Euro thing. That's like the furthest thing from, you know, the game ends in five rounds and, you know, the player at the highest victory point wins uh it's right. very much not like that and another thing that i love about pax Pamir is um that the way that it, uh, it delivers points uh is so controlled and so because you know um actually this is one of the only games that i've played that has points but but it's it's not points in the sense of a euro game you know it's or it's not points in the sense of a high score game like you know tetris and pinball and you know um it's really a different animal it it, it um you could almost look at the points in this game so we should explain a little bit about how the point system works but basically okay. there are these domination checks that come up um about four times per game usually um yep. and when those come out that's when we like check for scoring more or less and so there's really only four points in the game where scoring even happens at all so that alone is a weird thing because you know, uh, so many games just have like people are just scoring points left and right, scoring points, scoring points. Um, and I, I really appreciate that the windows for scoring points are very limited in that way. And then not only that, but they're very um, designed with how many points you get for certain things. Um, and there's only three or four things you would get points for. But they've designed it. So the thing that people need to know is after a domination check and people score points, if any player has, I, I don't know how it works in the multiplayer, we didn't play three or four player, but in two player, um, if if I have more, four, four or more points, is it, or five or more points? Uh, for checking dominance? To, to win the game. Oh yeah, if you're four points ahead of another player after dominance, you just win. You just win and the game instantly loses, which, you know, is like, whoa, it's really um, it's it's quite a uh, shock, you know, um, but it, the it, you can see as you play more that the numbers that are distributed are like very well calculated so that, you know, OK, if you want to if you win in this way, you only get three, like two more points than the other player. So you need to do that a couple times in order to win the game. But if you win in this way, you know, like it takes fewer of those kinds of wins to uh, to win. So so it uses points in this almost spatial way that I really think is very cool. And I have not really seen done before. Right. And 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 as you mentioned, like there's a maximum of four dominance checks that can happen over the course of the game. They're kind of cards that you can come that come out into the market. It's got a card flow market kind of like through the ages. Um, and you can buy this card, a dominance card, to trigger the scoring conditions. And so you might pay a lot of money for that even if you're in a good scoring position right now. But yeah, like as you mentioned, there's a maximum of five, uh, four of these dominance checks that can come out in the game and a minimum of two. And kind of a ni another nice thing that it does is it kind of gives like this rising and falling tension to the game. Um, because like as dominance checks approach, the game gets more and more and more tense. And then there's kind of like a, a an exhale or a, a breathing out period just after where you can kind of like get your footing again, try to get some money and start thinking about like how you're going to do the next dominance check. Yeah. And because the points are so discreet is almost the word for them, right? Like, mm -hmm. like in most games, points are very continuous, but in this right. game, they're almost like these big chunks and they're so kind of discreet to the 
point where uh, another thing I liked about them is that, yeah, like when you realize like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to be able to win this dominance check. So that's okay. I'm just going to like already count this one as lost and I'm going to start just like building my tableau or getting more money or, you know, uh, sort of building up things in another way that might be useful for later. Um, right. So that's, that's a, that's a neat thing as well. Totally. Um, uh, yeah. I guess another point I had here is uh, one thing that I really like about the design is like, it's pretty, it's pretty complex. I think it's over a four on the board Genki complexity scale. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, despite that, it has like a lot of clarity in terms of like actions. Mm -hmm. um, there's you, there's a strict action funnel. You take two actions per turn, um, and that's it. And that uh, there's a way to get free actions, but but generally speaking, you get two actions per turn. And at the beginning of the game, the only two actions available to you are purchase a card from the market and play a card from your hand. Um, and then even and then the cards have actions on them. But even then, there's only six different types of actions that you can even get from cards. So there's eight different actions in the game total, two of which are available to you at the start of the game, which is purchase and play a card. Mm -hmm. um, and then even when you delve into the specific actions themselves, none of them are terribly complicated. Like the battle action is like, if you have a, a two battle, basically what it does is remove removes two pieces yeah. on the board of your opponents. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that I really appreciate. Um, so there's lots of like clarity in terms of like the action structure of the game. Um, but something that you were mentioning is like, there's not a whole lot of strategic clarity in terms of like what to go for mm. or um, what's going to be important. So maybe you can speak a little bit more to that. Yeah. So, uh, well, I, I, I ultimately I, I I like this game a lot. I, I do find that it's uh, it's leans tactical. You know, it, mm -hmm. it leans very tactical. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that. Um, there, there is so much that can change in a short period of time. And it's, you know, it reminds me a little bit of like Dragon Bridge where the dragon switch, switches sides and it's like, oh, wow, that, the universe is now upside down. Um, yeah. But it has multiple of those is, is kind of okay. how it is. And it's a lot more abstract than that. So like, you know, in Dragon Bridge is like, oh, is the dragon on this side or that side? It's like you just see where it is. And that's the end of the question. But uh, the there's there's a lot of elaborate um, kind of dynamics that you have to sort of think through and they're they're kind of they're a little bit integer based and they're a little bit um, kind of a, not, not obscure, but like they're they're abstract, I guess. And so it's not it's not always super clear. And so from a strategic perspective, a lot of times and granted, I've only played four or five times. So, you know, I'm not by no means am I like good at the game or anything. But, you know, I did find that I was very incentivized to just like do generally good things and not not try to commit to anything uh, too much, which, you know, that's not that's not necessarily a critique. I mean, we want in strategy games, players to be reacting to what's happening. And we want, we don't want players to be like, I'm going for like a rush strategy. And then like, they just do that and do that and do that. And either it wins or it loses. Like they want them to be adapting and sort of doing that dance around sort of a triangle. Um, it is interesting to try to apply that kind of like triangle, you know, rush and economic play and that to, to a game like this. Um, but but I I ultimately feel that it it ends up feeling somewhat managerial and that you each turn you're just like well let me see where I am right now and what's the best thing I can do right now or like you know sometimes if you see a dominance check coming up 
you know, you can plan for like maybe a turn ahead or so. Um, but there's just so much that can just like flip on you. You know, like for example, one of those, a big example of that, and maybe the biggest example of that is the fact that in a two player game, uh, you and me may be, you know, there might be some status where like, let's say, you know, the, the, one of the dominance check things, there's, there's these three factions, there's the Afghans, the Russians and the, um, British. And so like, let's say I'm really aligned with the Afghans and I have all these cubes down on the board. And if I have more than four more of your, let's say your Russian or whatever, uh, then I, then I'll win the dominance check. But then if you switch, you can just become Afghan as well. And, um, then, then we're in like a completely different universe. You know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah, that, that it's that for some reason that makes me feel like, uh, you know, that, that I really just have to focus on reacting and, very tactical uh management of resources right yeah it's interesting that you mentioned like the strategy triangle of rush econ defense Mm -hmm. like this game is one of the games that really prompted me to think about like abstracting that concept a little bit further Mm -hmm. um to like i i wrote an article about axes of victory rather than um, like just the specific strategy triangle because when i was analyzing this game and playing this game and thinking about it um like it seems to me like the axes of victory in this game are kind of like not rush econ and defense. There's like, you know, it, it there's multiple different levels of analysis you can break it down on. But one is like whether you're going for like a faction dominance play or whether you're going for like a personal power play. So that's like two axes there. You could break it down that way, right? Right. But then if you want to get new more nuanced that way, you could say like, you know, the amount of power you have in the the amount of loyalty you have in the British faction is kind of a different axis of victory you can leverage in different circumstances or sometimes the axis of victory that is really important is like control over the money uh in the game um and so yeah i don't know like but any of those things can kind of like if you get past like a certain threshold of control you can really like leverage it into a victory in the right circumstances right so yeah i don't know i I found myself um so there are certain types of cards that are uh, somewhat rare that are not uh characters you're adding to your tableau or whatever uh they're like there's weird i guess they're event cards or something like that right yep so those cards i found myself liking them the best and wishing that there was more stuff like that and the reason is because those cards you buy them and then they just go to your tableau and now you just have that power until the next thing. And, um, you know, whereas the the um, there's a bunch of different things that makes you incentivize to get rid of the people from your tableau. Sometimes they can get killed. Sometimes uh, they just disappear if you have to switch factions. Uh, sometimes, you, you know, you have a pretty harsh limit on how many um, like characters you can have out on your tableau. So sometimes you know, uh, a lot of there's a lot of enter the battlefield um, effects that are very important. So you kind of are incentivized to just like shuff, keep shuffling out your your tableau a little bit. And I, you know, I found myself wanting, you know, when I would get a card like that, those events cards, I would feel like, ah, this is like I've paid a gold or whatever. And now I have this thing. And like, there's nothing between now and the dominance check that's going to change that. And there's something like, there's something just relieving about that. Um, (laughs) You know, and I use the word relief because um, while I like the game and I actually, I found myself like kind of missing it and wanting to play more. um, I, you know, 
it's such an you're like you just got to be on all of the time when you play this game and this is probably my biggest critique of the game maybe is that it's you know when we talk about playfulness and um and those kinds of values and sort of feeling like you can kind of play from the hip and uh that sort of thing I, I I don't think this is a tremendously playful game, and but the biggest reason for that is just that, you know, stuff can flip on you at any moment, and, you know, everything's quite transient, and you could just die at any, like, you know, like a, another dominance check could come out, and that's it, you know, like you could just lose. And so those things come together for me in a very, like a somewhat stressful, it feels like playing chess when I play this game. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see how that could happen uh, for starters. Like, um, like the game is like on a knife's edge, and you can you can like there can be big consequences for seemingly small things, right? Um, it's interesting that you mentioned like playfulness, um, because I think this is probably a good segue to talk about how the intersection of playfulness with like player psychology, mm-hmm. um, because it seems like different aspects of games can trigger playfulness or like its opposite um in different players um which is kind of a funny you know squishy type human thing um but yeah because like there's this thing uh in packs where it's kind of like easy to miss a small thing that might be important that may or mm-hmm. may not be important which is kind of something something you were talking about right like a proofreading um, kind of thing almost yeah sort of sort like of. things in packs from like may or may not matter i guess is how i would put it mm-hmm. like it may or may not matter that you're the card you just played is of the Persia suit. Okay. And yeah. And for me, like when I play that card, if I can't see like why it would or would not matter, like I kind of just feel like I'll wait to get to see if it matters and like to get burned by it kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll start to care about that kind of thing for like the next game. Like I'll be like, Oh, like I have to make sure that, you know, I keep an Mm -hmm. eye on my, my, uh, the regions of my cards or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like when you were approaching the game, you wanted to kind of figure out beforehand whether that sort of thing would matter. Or another, you know, very strong example of this in Pax Premier is like when you play a card to your tableau, you kind of either play it to the left or the right of your your existing cards. Yeah. And that matters sometimes uh-huh. in terms of like the way that the spies move around. They kind of move yeah. around in, in a ring of everybody's tableaus. Um, but it's kind of hard to say whether or not it will matter. Um, and so... Yeah, like I think that's an interesting intersection of like player psychology with playfulness. Yeah, and then talking about psychology and stuff, I think part of it might also be that, you know, uh the theme is not super like mm. fun. You know what I mean? Like right. like in the traditional sense of the word fun. Um it's it's pretty dry and um, you know, colorless, I guess. Uh, well, and like serious and high stakes. Serious, right? yeah, high stakes, exactly. So that invites me to think of it in and my play in that sort of way, where I'm not like, you know, like, haha, you know, like doing some, like in Magic the Gathering, for example, I might play some really stupid sounding like scorpion with like a skull on its stinger or something, or like Robo Scorpion. Right. And, you know, there's like an inherent silliness there where I'm invited to play with it and sort of play from the hip because it's silly. Um, but yeah, this game, it feels very serious. And uh, so that that also probably contributes to that, I think. Totally. Um, I there, did want to... Oh, oh, yeah, go you go. Well, there's a, str- a small distinction I wanted to make. You, you mentioned proofreading. And I think the difference between 
what what we're talking about here, like whether or not this thing is going to matter, evaluating that mm-hmm. um, and proofreading, is that like when when I think about proofreading in chess, like if I had just taken a second to calculate, like I would have known that my I was moving into um, a threatened space or whatever. Yeah. Like you could just know whether it was going to matter in chess, you know. For sure. Whereas in this, like, there's no guarantees whether something or something is or is not going to matter. It's kind of like a later later in the game implication uh, of a bunch of things that could happen. Um, and so it's a it's it's a, there's a little bit of fuzziness involved that makes it seem like a little bit different than proofreading to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, I think another thing that makes it feel that sort of stressful to me uh, is uh, the level of abstraction, the, how abstract it is. And um, I'm learning more and more in terms of like my preferences and like what uh, I think part of it's my preferences. And part of it is just also like, you know, um, how how people work and how information gets packaged. Um, we talk a bit about like, you know, I think you were talking about like, um, you know, grouping outputs together um, uh, recently on our Discord. And um, so I think there's like how what information gets packaged together and then also um, how is that being represented, you know, in terms of the graphics or in terms of like visually or uh, like all those things matter. And so well, this game has like two grids. I guess arguably you could even say maybe three grids because it's got a grid of cards for the market, which is a little bit weirdly spatial, just a little bit because, you know, like they're moving and because the coins are on there and uh, there there's like a weird semi-spatial element to that. But then there's a map, which definitely does have like almost like proto war game dynamics to it but it's so simple it's like very 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 simple um and then there's the card ring of cards you were mentioning before which by the way i think i that strikes me as something that probably makes a lot more sense in like three and four player games because oh i want this player to my right i want to like defend against them whereas this player to my left i'm not as worried about or something like that like that kind of makes sense but in a two-player game it's it's just got this strange thing like am i more scared of brett's left side of his tableau or his right side of his tableau you know um so in any case there's there's these grids but they're all like they're all like half of a grid or like a third of a grid or something. They're all very uh, like just like barely using that grid nature of them. And so like what I what I feel could be the case and there's no way to like do this with Pax Premier, but, you know, I would I, I feel that it could have been that there was less information on all these cards and more information on the board itself. And that might allow for the level of complexity to be a lot more grokkable. And like for, for this, the, you know, cause like, for example, uh, the, it's, it's so interesting to me that um, they have these stacks of your soldiers, um, right? So, you know, like up, up at the top of the board, you, you stack all the soldiers, soldier like the cubes, blocks. the blocks. The faction blocks. Yep. Exactly. You stack them. And it's just so interesting to me that the thing that we're looking at is the distance 
on the blocks in yeah. that area over there in the supply rather it's crucially important yeah right yeah. you gotta like really have your eyes trained on that and look for the four distance in the supply like literally like kind of in the box it's kind of like the most important thing in the game yes and meanwhile the cubes on the map like basically don't matter almost almost all the time it um, just matters that it is on the map exactly yeah. yes and that to me is um one of those things that it's just it's it's like too abstract for its own good it really would have served itself better if instead of like just looking at that list of integers you know how how high is the stack rather you know what's the situation on the map and that doesn't have to mean it's like becomes this big war game you know um but you know finding ways to use the grid use the map um uh, that would be something that I would uh, that I feel like would help me to be able to like, you know, spend less emotional energy interpreting the abstract into the strategically meaningful. Totally. And and I think you mentioned this during one of our plays like. Um, like for any game, basically, you when you're strategizing, you know, coming, coming we mentioned that it's difficult to come up with plans kind of in, in certain circumstances in the game and for any strategy game to make a coherent plan you kind of have to work backwards from the victory conditions right mm -hmm. and the thing about the victory conditions in this game is that they're somewhat complicated like it yeah. takes several sentences to describe even how it works um Oh and, yeah, we had we we talked about maybe doing a gag on the yeah. on the show where in fact if you if you have the rules near handy, uh that might be a cool thing to just like or or if you you can rem you remember them, right? So like Yep. Yeah, just you could just like walk us through what are the how do you actually get victory points? Sure. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, like like we mentioned there are four dominance cards in the deck, okay? And so when a dominance card comes out, it can be purchased by one of the players. Um and that triggers a dominance check where victory points will get scored. Okay. Yeah. So how it works is there's three factions in the game, the British, the Afghan, and the Russians. Mm -hmm. And you put they have what are called faction blocks on the board, which represent their power. They, they can be either armies or roads that you put out on the board. And when you put these blocks out on the board, say you put like a few Russian blocks out on the board, now Russia is more powerful. And so the when a dominance check happens, if one of the factions has four more blocks out on the board than any other faction, they're considered dominant. Than every and, other faction, just to correct. be clear. Yeah, Indivi yeah. Taken individually, yes. Yeah. They're, they have to be four ahead of everybody else. Right. Um, and so if that happens, they're considered dominant. And then the players that are loyal to that faction will score victory points because they've chosen the right horse to back, basically. Yeah. Um, and the person who's the most loyal will score five, second most loyal will score three, third most loyal will score one. Okay, so far, that that makes sense. You know, yep. that's like not so bad. So now what happens if it's not dominant? So if, if none of the factions are ahead by four, uh, none of that loyalty stuff matters at all. And all that matters is you have uh, cylinders that you put out on the board and on your cards um, that represent your personal power in the game. And so if none of the factions are dominant, then we just compare the your your cylinder power basically um and then the person with the most cylinder power is going to score three and the person with the second most cylinder power is going to score one um so there's a couple nuances though already so one thing is if there is a dominant faction and uh let's say british is dominant and and keith is loyal to the british and i'm loyal to the afghans there's a third then, thing yeah yeah he scores five points because he's loyal to the correct faction the dominant faction 
and I score zero because I have I'm not uh, loyal to them at all. And so we mentioned sudden death before. If he scores five points and I score zero points, he's ahead by more than four points, and so he instantly wins the game. Right. Um, did we, did you talk about loyalty? The comparing the loyalty also. Um. Yeah, that's what happens when it, when one of the factions is dominant. You compare your loyalty. Which oh, you compare it, loyalty. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um. So yeah. Those are the so there's conditions. And, these three and it, really distinct uh, axes, I guess you would maybe say, or resources, and, perhaps. Yeah, and, it, and it's crucial that, well, kind of like four, I guess. It's like British loyalty, Russian loyalty, Afghan loyalty. And oh, no, no, no. I was saying, I was thinking like uh, there's there's how many blocks are out in your color, let's say. From a player perspective, how many blocks sure. do I have out of my color? How loyal am I to that faction in case we're both oh, sure. that faction and then how yep. many uh cylinders out do i have right. um and these are all kind of disparate like you know it's not like the loyalty the loyalty is com- is like totally disconnected from how many blocks you have out and so is the yep. the cylinders so there are like three totally different things well and there's money as well so yeah if, if you want to think of it in terms of resources there's kind of four um i just but- meant for victory points only yeah sure yeah and and it's like crucially important that you not only like understand logically like how those victory conditions work, mm-hmm. but you really have to like completely internalize it to like make plans in the game. Yeah, um, because you can't be like stepwise thinking through what I just explained every time you're going to make any plan in the game. Like you kind of have to be thinking of it in more heuristic, fuzzy, in a more heuristic, fuzzy way. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it, it can take some doing to get there for sure. It, it, the victory conditions are complicated for sure yeah um yeah did you have any other uh notes uh critical notes or uh other things you wanted to say yeah for sure um one thing is like i really like we talked last week i think about uh strategic context um so the idea that like in puzzle strike you're you're buying cards from a market but then your valuation of those cards is modified somewhat by the the suits of the gem colors in, right. the, in the in the market because that affects the drop pattern um for the next turn um and so i think that one of the things that pax mirror gets really right is it has the right detail or resolution of strategic context in a lot of different ways and so like you know there's there's kind of like lots of quote-unquote suits in the game right hmm. there's like four actual suits of cards uh military political intelligence and economic um there's six regions on the map um and those can be like listed on the cards like a, every card also has a region so it's already kind of like having two suits on each card like the suit itself and then the region suit there's three factions in the game and a card could be loyal to no one or one of the three factions and that's kind of like another suit of the card and then even the action types in the game like there's six primary actions that come from cards and so that's kind of like in the same realm of like it's not um, a whole universe of like 200 special abilities where every card has a different special ability. It's like there's six action types and they get right. mixed and matched on different cards. Um, or even like the comes into play abilities. I think there's like four to six different comes into play abilities that are possible on cards. Mm-hmm. And they're also very like suited or low resolution in this way. And then so with that combination of like suited strategic context and mixing and matching, you get like kind of a grokable but very huge uh, uh, variety space of different strategic contexts, basically, um, through the combinatorics of like mixing and matching all these different suits. 
um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's very successful. I mean, I think that that's the reason that I think that's probably the the, the best selling point about this game is, you know, and it's it goes back to what you said originally that this is uh, a game where every match is very different. And I think um, there's a couple. Well, that's there's two reasons for that. One is this combinatorial um, sort of uh, thing that you're discussed talking about, but also the I think that also the, the how transient things are uh, contributes to that too because um, uh, you know like uh, it's interesting because you know one of the least transient things almost in the game might be the market. Um, right. Because the market sometimes moves a little bit slowly and you can see ahead, you have like a good amount of look ahead. You can see five cards ahead on two tracks. So for example, if there's a bunch of, um, uh, uh, what's the word for the, the banner, the colored banner, uh, uh, national banner people, patriots. patriots. If there's a bunch of patriots for one faction and none for another faction, you know, that creates uh, one of those like long arc things that we can all both see and um, respond to. And it kind of it's kind of lingers for a while. And I think that's what makes the game not just a pure tactical, um, you know, do what you do, 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 like maximize this turn kind of thing. That's really what gives that shape. I, I wish that there was more of that, like on the board, you know, or I mean, that that's probably the place to put it is that board. I really just feel that that board was just not used to its full potential. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that that's probably my that might be ultimately my biggest complaint about the game, it, just because it makes it so much more abstract and therefore so much more uh, like it, it takes a little more effort to do every little every little thought and every little like proofread i guess yeah like to that point like uh, of the map being sort of underused um i i kind of agree that the movement in the game is kind of feels a little bit too restrictive like you need to have an army of the faction that you control somewhere and then you need to have a road on the border between the two places of like where you want to go and then you need to have a move action that you can use mm-hmm. and so it's just it just takes a lot to set up a move of a piece. Yeah. Um, and so most of the time they kind of stay where they start. Um, like you'll, you'll definitely move pieces a few times each game, but it's not like all the time for sure. Um, and I think that contributes to like the feeling of the board, like, I don't know, not being that integrated with the rest of the game, I guess I would say. Well, and that also contributes to that thing we talked about earlier where, you know what you said, like, Oh, I'm not sure if this is good or not. I think yeah. part of that is because the actions, some of them are so small, like with respect to the whole system, like they're very like take one gold from the bank, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm going to spend one action to take one gold from the bank. Like, you know, I, I think another uh, sort of game design thing that I, try to look for and it's hard it's hard to achieve but um it's like boldness right um and you know making sure that when you take an action it's like it's you know that ambiguity is good but the ambiguity shouldn't come from like that it's this little tiny thing and i'm like trying to compare it to other little tiny things you know so like building a road or moving a piece you know there's some of the actions just felt too 
too little, uh, you know, or, or, or something. That's part of it is their littleness. Um, uh, you know, uh, not all the actions. There are some actions that are like, okay, this is clearly like, you know, I'm adding, you know, my discs to the board or I'm, you know, killing one of your cards. That feels very, that feels very, you know, in fact, that's probably the most satisfying action in the game for me was putting one of my discs on one of your cards and, you know, having him betray that card. That feels yeah. very like, a bold action, you know, but then just on the same level as that is take one gold from the bank or, you know, put down a bridge, you know, and it, yeah. those things just feel too, too micro, you know? Yeah. Especially in terms of like the bridge example, like putting down a road, uh, often can feel a little bit micro, like you're saying. Um, but in terms, like, to be fair, like in terms of the money aspect, like when we it's a the game has a closed economy largely i love so that each, that's very cool we, we each start the game with four rupees and so like there's eight rupees in the game barring other card effects basically and so you know when you take one you're saying like you take one gold from the market but to be fair that does represent like one eighth of the entire economy of the game yeah so it is like pretty a pretty chunky thing yeah I think. that's true I, I know what you mean, though. Like, well, yeah, like, yeah, it's weird because, like, yeah, it is one eighth of the economy of the game, but uh, you know, you you can't you can't do all that much with you know, like, it costs two gold to put down one of those roads, um, and so it's weird. Like, money, I, I really love the closed economy. That's another one of those like train game things that I just I think it's fantastic, and I yep. also really love those cards that that give you two gold out of the bank but if you ever lose this card you have to give that two gold back that is like oh i just love that i i think there's a whole game idea there um uh but yeah it's it, for whatever reason i understand what you're saying that it's one eighth of the whole economy but it still just feels and it may be just the fact that it's one coin like literally just the concept that it's one coin you know what i mean my, on some level my brain's like this doesn't feel good you know like sure. uh it feels like too few coins <laughs> i should be getting two well, coins yeah. or something right you sure. know well yeah aesthetics <laughs> are important yeah absolutely. yeah 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 um yeah i guess another thing i wanted to mention uh you brought up the patriots mm -hmm. um in terms of like permanence like kind of like giving a sense of like the the larger arcs of the game yeah and so one thing i wanted to bring up that i've heard cole talk about actually the, the designer um is the concept of like strategic inertia and so like this is the idea that like when you kind of commit to something like say in this game you you play a couple british patriots um you're really committing to it because if you the one of the rules is if you sw if you have british patriots and you switch factions you have to discard all of your british patriots all of the gifts you gave to the british royalty um and all of the british uh what are they called um loyalty prizes and so you know, you should really think carefully about like where you're investing your resources um, because there is like a, a pretty large amount of like strategic inertia in terms of like it pays to pick right and continue on that path because if you don't, you're giving up a lot of opportunity cost um, of those cards that you already played. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of. I mean, you know, sort of, but I, I feel like you know, when you're playing, like in theory, that makes sense. But I also feel like when you're playing, you just kind of got to switch off sometimes. And like, yep. you know, and, and sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's maybe predictable and maybe higher level players can like totally predict it. But sometimes I, I don't 
I don't know if it really is all that predictable. Um, and uh, and then and then on the other hand, also discarding all your patriots. You know, it's like you kind of got to make space for those new enter the battlefield effects anyways. Um, you know, and it depends like like so you mentioned the thing about free actions. Um, sure. That's that's one of the things I, 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 I sort of wish wasn't in the game, actually. Like um, I, in general, I'm very skeptical of like, you know, this game has two actions, but then sometimes there's just all these free actions you can take. Like I, I worry about like action economy, I guess. And yeah. I found in PAX Premier that it was like, you know, there were sometimes long stretches where you and I both had just two actions. And then there was also long stretches where you and I had like four or five, you know, actions per turn, six actions per turn, like a lot of actions because we had all these brown cards and there was the brown uh, thing. Um yeah, and I had trouble. That's another one of those like systems where I was like, I had like I, I had trouble like, you know, I I sort of it was like a weird. I had trouble like grokking that and like using it as part of my strategy. Um, it, it sort of just felt like you know, oh hey, I just get a bunch of random you know free actions here or not, you know, um, because you know. Uh, and I guess that that this may be a sort of thing where the game maybe gets better the more you play it because you you become able to really manipulate all of these systems um, simultaneously and and really kind of you know that's I think probably like the true form of playing the game. But I I found it in the five or so plays uh, difficult to really do all that and yeah and then like i remember i had a couple of situations where i was like well i am very committed to this faction right now but i just i mean look at what's going on i gotta switch you know like so i you gotta switch you gotta switch and you know and then yeah it does have a cost but then you also there's kind of a benefit actually almost too of like clearing out that tableau now you can play a bunch of enter the battlefields without worrying about having to, you know, lose all these things and you can get new powers that are useful for now and uh, things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, it totally does. Uh, what? Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the free actions. Um, it's funny. Yeah, they're kind of like very dangerous design wise, I think um, mm -hmm. it does mess with like the action economy. And that, that can be a big problem. Yeah. Um, and also like the action funnel, like in general, like your, your turn chunks become too big and then when that happens like the look ahead gets to be too big and that can be a problem um but there is something like intrinsically fun about like getting away with having a free action um so i think part of the problem in this game that you like maybe is that the free actions are re repeatable um like yeah. when you take a free action you don't lose the card you can take that free action for as long as um the favored suit stays the same and you still have that card basically um, yeah once each turn um so yeah like a lot of euro games have like you'll get like a free action token or something that you can, you know, cash right. once you get some of that, like rush of like, I'm like beating the system or whatever, but not without like the kind of, um, look ahead dangers, um, and the action economy dangers and that kind of thing. Well, it's also weird to me that the thing that determines whether you have free or which color, which suit, if you want, uh, has the free action is just like one of the effects on cards and enter the battlefield effect. Like that yeah. feels like maybe that's not where that should go. Like I could see that being on like a dominance, like maybe there's different dominance uh, check cards and then it's like, okay, this dominance check hit card came out. Now it's this suit for this whole dominance check or something like that. Like that's another one of those things because like, I, here's how I see it when I'm playing the game. It's like, I have, you know, two blues, one purple, one Brown. You have like, 
you know, one brown, two blues, three purples or whatever. And then like somebody plays a card and it just has one of those. Now you change the thing thing. And we're all we're both like, whoa, how many free actions did I get? You know, like and and that, like that might just be a noob thing, perhaps that, that it feels that way to me. But it feels like who's getting showered with some free effects because, you know, when you're looking at the cards, like, yes, that might be part of your valuation. You might like take the card so that you can get the free actions, but there's a lot more really important things on the card, you know, like, and there's a lot of cards you're just like not going to take a, because they cost too much B because they're uh, a uh, uh, color banner thing of a faction that you really don't want to join. You know what I mean? So like you're, you're kind of limited in the cards that you will actually seriously take. And then between them, it's like, well, I just really need this, this, this enter the battlefield effect that it has. And then boom, Hey, what do you know? It also has like purples are free now. You know what I mean? Um, and so that was psychologically, that's how it worked for me. It felt like, there was just like these random uh, free action showers. And that would be one thing if that was a small deal, but that's that's kind of a big deal, getting all these free actions. Yeah, it's another one of those things like where it's hard to tell a lot of the times like what's going to matter in the game. And so those like impact icons of, that change the favorite suit, sometimes mm -hmm. they matter a lot and sometimes they matter barely at all. And right. so yeah, like you're right. Sometimes it can feel arbitrary because like you picked a card for another reason or your opponent picked a card for another reason. And this is just like happening now or whatever. Um, but I also think that it is something that kind of comes easier to you as you play the game more. Um, you kind of like see like who's powerful in what suit and kind of play toward like you, you like you mentioned, like you included in your valuation of the cards. Um, yeah, it's like another element of the bundling that's going on, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I also wanted to mention a little bit about hidden information in the game. There's kind of an awkward thing in the game that yeah, I think becomes, is. I would guess, more awkward the more you play because so like right now it works fine. But like so there's a public market and when you buy a card, you take it to your private hand, which is a little bit weird because I saw you take that card now. The, the the thing was that there's so many cards in the game that like, uh, you know, and I'm new at the game, so I don't remember really what you took at all, I'm, you know, um, so it works fine. But I do feel that if we were like, you know, PAX experts, I feel like experts in the game remember exactly what everyone else took. Right. Like because yeah. it matters and they're thinking about all that stuff. So that's just like kind of an awkward rule. But um, it also plays into this question of like hidden information in the game. And how do you feel about the state of the hidden information? I had one uh, suggestion that I feel like might be cool for the game, which is there are five, as I mentioned, in the uh, in the in the shop, there are five grid cards across and they cost zero, one, two, three, four. Is that right? Or is there six? There's a six across because it goes six up to cost. five. It goes up to five cost. So I feel like once it's at once it's at five cost. First of all, that's a card that just drew out. I feel like that that car that column should just cost X as in you can't buy this. This is just like the next box. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. That'd be a good like info horizon thing, maybe because uh, it feels weird if someone has five gold, which is a lot of gold in this game and they just buy the car that just drew. I, that feels that feels like not right to me in some way, uh, you know, like a violation of the the info horizon, I guess, because there is a soft info horizon. And, you know, most of the time, no one's buying the five cost cards uh, or the four cost cards, really. Um, so it's really like those six cards on the left that people actually engage with. And so 
it feels a little weird when people then actually buy a four or five cost card. You know what I mean? Have oh, you thought about that at yeah. all? Does, does that is, is that how you feel about it, or what do you think? I yeah, I think making the change that you can't buy the five column um, seems fine. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't like. I think it mitigates a little bit of the blindsiding that can happen. Um, mm -hmm. So oh yeah, you could that. also make it that the by the way, you could also make it that the dominance check, you know the double there's a double dominance rule where if there's two dominance cards that come out, uh they don't both activate. Uh they 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 you don't have to buy them to activate them. They both just right. they activate as one dominance. So you could actually kind of fix that or or so, sort of fix that by having it that the dominance doesn't uh, activate right away. I don't know. It, maybe it wouldn't matter very often, actually. But um, anyway, sorry. Go on. That's okay. And the double dominance rule is like one of my favorite rules in the game because I, mm. I think it's really exciting. It's kind of like sometimes it can be kind of high variance, but I think it's exciting. And so anyway, but yeah, so you've kind of um, stepped into like a canonical board game debate, uh, which is about like hidden trackable information. Yeah. And so yeah, it's the thing like where we both saw that you took X card. And so theoretically, if you had a perfect memory, you could know what that card is. And so then my hand is effectively not a private hand. It's a public hand. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, this this comes up a lot. Uh, one another classic example is like El Grande. Have you played El Grande? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got like the uh, the Castillo Tower where you put like cubes in. Yeah. And like you have to declare when you put cubes of your color in that tower, how many cubes you're putting in yeah so again like theoretically you can remember like how many cubes everybody has in the tower and that would give you like a strategic advantage and i'll um, also give another example of pandemic where where theoretically you're supposed to play with your hands being private which is right. just bizarre I don't, i've never known anyone to actually do that but yeah go on right yeah and so um it ends up being like in my experience it's important like who you're playing with yeah in terms of like how much that ends up mattering um, like you mentioned, like player skill being a part of it. Um, like I, I just don't have the intellectual bandwidth to like also remember like what cards you drew. I can kind of remember like fuzzy, um, like you, I, I can remember stuff, stuff like you have an Afghan Patriot or something like that. Right. Um, but not like the whole card or whatever. Um, and so I think people overstate it sometimes mm -hmm. in terms of like, like what they could remember, um, and what they couldn't uh yeah i think for for absolutely yeah and i think for in a practical sense you know it's doesn't matter you know it, it's fine but it is it, it is curious like i mean so some of my favorite board games i played thousands of matches of or like you know hundreds at least of matches of and i feel like if i did this with pax premier you know i would start remembering what people took because the cards would have a lot of um meaning to me right like they wouldn't just be these weird collections of things it'd be like oh that guy like i know that character and i have all these different matches where i played around that character and i know what that character's capable of and i'm looking at it in the market and now oh brett took it okay i'm not going to forget that like i you know i know brett has that character so you know i almost wonder if like maybe a solution is like you know, because I'm not opposed to hide the information just to, like for, for the sake of smoothness or sort of when you're when you're new, you just don't want your eyeballs to see all this stuff everywhere. Um, so but maybe there could be like a variant for advanced players where you just, you know, you have your fa an open hand or whatever, because that, that might be a, a good compromise. You're right. Like as you get better at the game and kind of rock the cards more fully, 
um, you can remember more. And so it might become more of a problem. Um, yeah. Or this also, like, it reminds me of a thing, like, I always think of Caverna hmm. uh, as an example of, like, I don't know, like a security by obscurity type of thing, like mm -hmm. where there's just this, like, in Agricola, you get a hand of cards when you start the game, right? And that kind of like helps dictate your strategy somewhat because you're not right. you don't have all the options. You're funneled, right? But in Caverna, all the buildings are available to you every game, <laughs> and so it's like there's like this suspicion almost that like your opponent could be like looking at every single building and like considering them deeply and like calculating, and it seems like the idea is that there's a social contract that just says that you like won't do that. Right. And so that kind of like smacks similarly to like the hidden trackable information thing. Like it, it's not a problem as long as you're like on the same page uh, as your opponent with it, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, so I suppose and an advanced player, you know, I guess they're playing against another advanced player. And so they just remember each other's stuff and then that's fine. Right. Um, I guess the weird thing is that like for a medium player, it's just... You know, it, perhaps this is just a bit of like game design theory that's not so much of necessarily a practical thing, but you know, um, there could be a situation where you did remember which card I got, I took, and it did end up mattering. And that would be weird if, you know, that's just, it's like, because the game's not a memory test game, you know? So that's just one of those kind of it, it's silly it's a silly it's not really a critique it's just a it's sort of a thing to think about um but i i understand also this is a long running uh debate and i also think um there is a lot to literally just take stuff away from people's eyeballs like i really think that there's a lot of value in that it's you know it's aesthetic but the aesthetics are tied in with the mechanics you know as you said with caverna you're just like invited to look at all this stuff and it's just yeah. you know you really as a designer got to be like super careful like what are you letting people look at at all um right. actually i felt a little bit with the market because it shows you 12 cards and the cards are like you know they're not they're not super simple they're they've they've got a good amount of stuff on them and there's 12 of them and yeah the the right half you're gonna not get but it's still there and so um you know i if i were designing this i might design that with a shorter maybe like fewer cards in there somehow i don't know how to do that or make each card a little simpler perhaps would be another possible solution there um but yeah just yeah it's very valid to like you know uh Keep keep a bunch of information away from people uh, as much as you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, all I could say really is that turning the hands face down works for me to limit my calculation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes people overstate the amount to which they can actually memorize other people's cards. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it's a it's an in theory. It's a theoretical right. thing. And it's definitely something for game designers to you know, be considerate of. I, in this game, it's fine. There could certainly be another game where it was not fine, you yeah. know? Um, and so, um, yeah. Yeah, kind of makes things, like, feel, like, kind of social or squishy or, like, arbitrary in, in a little bit. And, you know, that can be uncomfortable, for sure. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is that it depends on the type of game. Like, if this were, like, Bonanza, like, I wouldn't, or something, you know, where it had that kind of, like, fun and social tone, I wouldn't care as much. Uh, but this game, the tone is is very serious, and it feels very, 
uh, you know, like hardcore or something. So that makes me be like, oh, I should, I should try to remember what that card was. And, and I, and I feel bad for not remembering, you know, like that's, that's, I, I could be getting utility out of that memory and I'm not doing it. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, any final thoughts on uh, Pax Pamir? I think I covered everything I have. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about um, what we want to do next for this wonderful podcast of ours. Sure. Um, what were we thinking of? Oh, um, I think we were thinking of playing uh, Reiner Kanitsa game. Uh, he's a designer that I think we both like quite a bit. Um, he wrote the foreword to my first book. Did you know that? I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I knew that once upon a time because I must have read it, but <laughs> that's awesome. Super yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a great designer. Uh, lots of great games. Uh, Tigers and Euphrates, Through the Desert, mm -hmm. uh, Battle Line, lots of good stuff. Um, but he has this game called Blue Moon, which I guess is like a head-to-head, -head, kind of like magic-like monster battler game, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so, I don't know. He's like kind of a... Uh, I don't know. Like a, He very much comes from the German school of game design. Like, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of victory points and n not that confrontational a lot of the time and normally pretty abstract. So, I don't even really know what, like... Reiner Knizia doing Magic the Gathering means. So that's yeah. part of the reason I'm to check it out. Well, my teaser for this uh, that next episode will be that I bought Blue Moon about 10 years ago. I played it one time and I hated it. Um, <laughs> and I never played it since. But uh, I also hated Magic the Gathering back then. So um, I think now I'm, you know, I have like a, a moderated opinion of Magic, Magic the Gathering. And uh, so maybe now I'll be able to appreciate it. Um, and I'm very curious to see how that goes. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you again, uh, Brett. And uh, people, if people have requests for us to play certain games, we'd love to hear them. Um, we would love to play games that you guys want to hear us talk about. So please let us know either on the Discord or the Patreon or email. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening.